There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, hello. How is everyone? A week of staying home, maybe. Working from home more. Self-isolating. All that sort of stuff. Washing your hands. Who would have thought? Fighting for toilet paper. Um, what's the date? 15th of March. So, this week on the Warrior You podcast, I'm talking with Jeffrey Wu, the CEO and joint founder of Health Via Modern Nutrition, HVMN. This is Jeff's second time on the Warrior You podcast. You may remember that he was a guest way back on episode 32. I love talking to this guy. He's a wealth of information. He approaches nutrition from his computer science background. And he's another guy whose superpower is positivity. So I connect with him. During the podcast, we talk all about ketosis and the application of ketone ester drinks. We discuss one of my favorite people, Ben Greenfield, and his N equals 1 experiments. Um, bit of a shout out to Ben Greenfield. Waiting for you to come on the show, brother. brother so, um, yeah, reach out. We play around with the idea that vegans and carnivores might actually all be onto something. And we, of course, tackle some thoughts about the coronavirus, which I know is, well, it's on everyone's minds and obviously on the media's agenda. Um, But anyway, we'll have a chat about that. As always, the podcast is being sponsored by my great friends at Aussie Strength and also Ironside Coffee, two of my favorite things, working out and drinking coffee. Someone show me a better combination than that. Uh, I bet you can't. Actually, now I think of it, in fact, the other day, someone sent me a message saying, um, could you please stop posting so many photos of coffee on your Instagram? So how did I handle that? I hear you ask. Well, I asked that uncultured person to unfollow me immediately if they felt like that, you know, because we have nothing in common. And I also sent them a Worry You t-shirt, signed copies of my books and a bag of Ironside coffee. I notice you haven't unfollowed me yet, just saying. Anyway, another massive shout-out to the team at the Work Health and Safety Experts, WHSE. They work across a wide range of industries throughout Australia, New Zealand, Asia, and, well, worldwide, actually. WHSE provides a range of services to assist businesses to navigate the often complicated OHS WHS requirements. Their services include compliance auditing, incident investigations, reporting, legislative guidance, tendering, technical writing, assistance with workers' compensation, and injury management matters. So you can outsource a lot of that stuff. WHSE can also provide labour hire personnel on short and long term arrangements www. 
www.whseexperts.com www.whseexperts.com Hey, and thanks to ZSman, who left a review on Podbean last week. He said, Another great interview, Bram. I like the diverse backgrounds of each people you interview in your podcast, from veterans to others who have established beyond the norm within their field. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I wish if you can interview Angela Lee Duckworth on the topic of grit. That's a great idea. And also, if possible, David Goggins. God knows I'm trying. If you can manage to interview him, that'd be great. All right. Many thanks for seeking out and interviewing extraordinary people that have many positive influences to us listeners. Keep up the excellent podcast, and I salute you and the many successes that come for you in the future. Thanks, man. I really like that review. That's pretty cool. Heartfelt. Um, Mate, if you're listening to this, send me a private message on Instagram, and I'll flick you a Warrior U t-shirt. Righto, I think that's enough of me gas bagging. Um, I've had three Ironside coffees and a 250ml hit of C4 because I'm going to go work out after this. Alrighty, Jeffrey Wu, HVMN. This one is so good. Let's get on with the show. Hello. Jeffrey Wu. Hey, good to reconnect here. How have you been? It's been too long. Oh my God, do you look younger? You look younger. (laughs) I'll take that as a compliment. Oh my God. I suppose you meant to say that, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) How are you? Good, good, good. Yeah, I I guess like last time we spoke was pretty early in the keto nester and military overlap. And I think there's been a lot of exciting development on on that front. So been able to see just a lot of... uh, different facilities in across America at this point, which is kind of an interesting personal journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things are, things are good. Yeah. You're the busiest man in the world based on, based on what I'm seeing. Um, busier than me. You've got, <laughs> you know, I'm already recording. So the guests that have come on previously, I don't think I've ever had someone come on twice from the U S so you're the first one international. Well, hopefully we can keep that bar high and hopefully I can meet that bar. <laughs> Mate, you've been so busy. Okay. So, Anyway, just to recap for the listeners, talking to Jeffrey Wu, he's the CEO and the joint founder of HVMN, Health via Modern Nutrition. I love that. And uh, yeah. the listeners might remember that last year, was it last year or the year before? It was last year, early last year, that I trialed some of the uh, ketone esters and yeah, loved it. I thought it was Oh yeah, it was it was brilliant. It was really good. I was sharper. Running was there was wasn't as much lactic acid build up. I'm sure that's probably what it's meant to do anyway. But yeah, and I and I obviously used that in conjunction with trialing a ketogenic diet, which I found tough. But that was my own personal mental weakness, not not the uh, the diet. Well, I would just say that we've trained our physiology and metabolism to not be keto. I mean, we're just constantly with the standard Western diet, always eating carbs. So it's basically reversing 30, 40 years of training one nutrition system, essentially. Yeah. So I, I think when people think about, oh, it's hard to be keto, it's like, yeah, it's, it's just like you were trained to be a marathon runner and then suddenly in a week, you were supposed to be powerlifting. It's like, yeah, your body's going to be a little freaked out. And I think this stands a reason for nutrition as well. Yeah, and, and I thought because of my military background, especially in, in special forces, that I would operate really well on my own fats and on a, on a ketogenic diet. 
but um, in fact, what I was what I was doing was just hoarding sugar whenever I could get it. And I look at our ration packs, especially with the American ration packs that special forces use a lot, and it's just so high in sugar that you basically you know, you're fasting for 10 hours and then just slamming huge amounts of calories. So, you know, three, 4,000, you know, calories and then and then fasting again. And so it wasn't, it was never in ketosis at all the way I thought it was. Yeah, it's been interesting to hear about some of the experiences with folks on the ground with the evolution of the MRE where absolutely getting enough calories is step one. I mean, usually in, in previous conflicts where the supply chain wasn't that good, like people would go kind of days without eating. And I think talking to some of the folks that are, are recently serving, they're talking about the supply chains that have been built up literally for 20 years. I mean, these are, these are some of the most well-equipped supply chains in modern conflict. So the problem now is less so can you get calories? It's can you get calories that are efficient for performance, resilience, longevity? Yeah, and it does, I mean, it is a simplistic notion that all units will have access or need access to complex supply chain. So, for instance, if we did a six-week vehicle operation, we would carry all of our all of our food with us for six weeks. I mean, I'd love to know now, looking back on it, how many calories those trucks were carrying around on them, you know, and then, and then we would walk from those vehicles for 72-hour operations where we would carry, for 72-hour operation, we would carry one meal. In some cases, the rest was ammunition and water. Um, and then we would coin the phrase "fight for food locally." So we would we would buy you know naan bread and goat and stuff like that off off the locals. So you're supplementing your your food, but it's not optimal. Yeah, but I think in in conflict in in those kinds of situations, it's hard to be optimal. Hey, before we before we um talk about what you're doing with the, the military space, can you just explain again for the listeners what a ketogenic diet is and what HVMN is doing in that space? Yeah, yeah. Let's start from the top a little bit. Yeah, I didn't know we were already going. So happy to rewind a little bit, not just jump into random context here. Um, so ketogenic diet, it's basically a diet that enables your body to be in a state of ketosis or ketogenesis where your body produces ketones from your fat stores. So usually when we're talking about a standard Western diet, we have quite a bit of high carbohydrate. So breads, pastas, pizzas, all these sorts of things are pretty much staples in our, our cuisine. And these are very high amount of carbohydrates. So you never really need to in this modern food environment ever tap into your fat reserves. The ketogenic diet from an ancestral perspective was likely just a normal part of metabolism as we were hunter gatherers that we didn't have thousands of calories at the convenience store across the street from us. We would have to hunt stuff gather and it'd be hard to find these calories. Um, so being in ketosis, being metabolically flexible where we can shift from carbohydrate to fat metabolism was probably a very natural state for us. Yeah. Now fast forward to the industrial and agricultural revolution, you have a lot of availability of food. We solved the issue of famine. Now you can make the argument that the biggest killers of humans today is overconsumption, right? Obesity. Yeah diabetes. Some of these metabolic syndromes are literally the biggest killers of humans today. Hopefully coronavirus doesn't cross that threshold, but I think given the data, it's, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Um, I've written it down to talk to you about, cause I'd love your perspective on that in a moment. Yeah, that'd be cool. Thanks man. Yeah. So the ketogenic diet is something that essentially you could say that society or culture kind of has forgotten. 
but researchers and doctors in the early 1900s actually looked at prescribing patients, especially young children with seizures, epilepsy, that were uncontrollable with medication to go on a ketogenic diet to control their seizures. So there was early applications of ketogenic diet in specific, specific narrow uh, medical indications. So there's also small practitioners are applying it for diabetes and blood sugar control. And I would say that within the last 10, 20 years, research has really exploded. I think on, on two main findings, one of the interesting findings was that scientists realized that there was a metabolic advantage potentially with using ketones yeah. as a fuel substrate versus other types of substrate like fat or carbohydrate. And then two, more and more people were using the ketogenic diet for specific performance or health applications. Mm. So more and more athletes were experimenting with the ketogenic diet during their training blocks or for certain types of events or trying to really, really ramp up their aerobic performance in these endurance races. So I would say that the ketogenic diet today is one of the most prolific areas of research. Mm. A lot of researchers in academia, industry, a number of places are looking at human performance applications down to medical conditions, right? You have companies like Verda Health, which has been making some, some splash using a ketogenic diet to cure diabetes. Yeah. And they published some interesting clinical trials and are signing up big insurance uh, companies to support that model. Uh, you have more and more work with ketones or a ketogenic diet looking at specific performance applications. And, and that's a little bit of where we're focused on at HVMN. And then you have other folks looking at uh, medical applications for conditions like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's and some of these things that potentially have a metabolic root cause. Yeah. And then my role with HVMN, it really originated, I would say, differently from where a lot of people entered the ketogenic diet. I would say that most people discover the ketogenic diet from a weight management or a weight loss perspective, or they had some sort of medical condition. I was relatively, I would say, lucky to be healthy and looking for performance gains and optimization gains. And I have a computer science background by training. So I think our approach was always, how do you apply a rigorous quantitative approach towards performance, towards mm. human performance? And that's been sort of our, our, our wheelhouse. How do we incorporate the latest findings in metabolism, in physiology, and practice them? And our flagship product that we we're referencing earlier is a ketone ester that originated from a DARPA program to enhance soldier performance, hence why uh, we have you know, some, some friends in that community. Can you explain DARPA just for the, the listeners? Yeah. So DARPA is the U S uh, department of defense advanced research projects agency. So uh, DARPA funded some of the initial research for the internet, for example, yeah. and the program that spawned the ketone ester was called metabolic dominance. So there's a number of different research projects <laughs> looking at the enhanced yeah. uh, soldier metabolism. Yeah. yeah. It's been an interesting universe to play around in so if you're having darpa funding and access to darpa you know scientists and and the like you know suffice to say what what ends up happening is that product is now being used by some pretty important people yeah it's it's been one of the fun parts about the job honestly it's uh working with folks in the defense community but also just athletes i i think i've been relatively Lucky in the sense that I'm not really a big sports fanboy. So when I talk to athletes, it's not like, 
like, wow, like, can I have your autograph? It's like, Hey, like here, here, I want to learn better problems. How do we solve it? And yeah. I think, but what I do respect with these elite athletes is that, mm. you know, they're, they're world-class what they do. And I think you can get inspiration from that to apply to your own discipline, your own life. So yeah. I think that's been a really cool side effect of that. Do you, do you prefer working with the athletes or Navy SEALs and Delta Force and those sort of guys? Put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about any specific units per se, but I think that's been a part of, I, say, I would say, just a cultural understanding of America that I didn't really have exposure to. I would say I grew up in Los Angeles, spent basically my entire life in California and didn't have any family or friends in the military community. And, and obviously, like, you know, I, I was kind of like a military history buff growing up as a kid. So I'd read about all these, you know, mm. Patton and, and all the campaigns in Africa and, and Europe and then all, very fascinating campaigns across the Pacific and during World War II. So it was always kind of like a mythology or a story to me and not, and not really like real people. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, I would say that America like obviously puts military pretty in, in high regard. And I didn't get that personally until working with some of these people and you just realize yeah. that they really believe in the mission, right? Like I'm sure like in your service of some of the folks you you know worked with in your previous life, like there's a mission and a, there a, like a purpose that I think is impossible to replicate in the civilian world or, world, or very hard to. I can only imagine that the West Coast, the West Coast uh, SEALs as well are fanatical in some regards. So um, <laughs> I've no doubt there's a good target audience there. Um, yeah. You... Yeah, so the, the product itself, ketone ester product, like you, you don't just make it, you you use it. Like a lot of your employees use it, don't you, before you go and have a, a meeting or something like that, you'll you'll slam down some <laughs> ketone esters. And I would say that there's definitely perks of being, uh, you know, the folks that are making it. I mean, I would say that we've definitely had a lot of experience just playing around with some of the more ex- experimental use cases ranging from using it as a way to suppress appetite for fasting, for example, or entering a ketogenic diet, making it easier to transition into being more keto adapted without just kind of going cold turkey, uh, ranging to, yeah, using it for cognitive performance or using it for talks. There's definitely people, I know that Rhonda Patrick talked about this on Joe Rogan's podcast, talking about how she uses it before big talks yeah, for right. a presentation. Mm-hmm. There's definitely like an interesting like anxiolytic effect there. To, yeah, I mean, into more silly experiments, you know, mixing with like alcohol and seeing how that makes people, it's just kind of interesting to <laughs> experiment with all sorts of combinations. I first heard Dr. Rhonda Patrick talk about HVMN on Joe Rogan's podcast, which is why I reached out to you. And then I, I did actually have a speaking engagement and um, consumed one of the ketone ester drinks before that. Yeah, the, the place wasn't big enough for my personality. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was it was really it was really good. Um, and I did and I wondered whether it was, you know, whether it was actually my brain tricking me, thinking that I'm a lot sharper right now because of this, or if it was actually working. So it was a t- it was a tough thing for me to work out to be honest but there was definitely um yeah it's real so i would say that there is that's definitely areas that people that researchers and, and we're actually looking at yeah teasing at the cognitive those are the physical characteristics yeah. are much more well understood but one of the areas that we're excited about is cognitive performance yeah but ketogenesis itself has been proven uh, to be beneficial for brain 
function and we discussed or you discussed just a moment ago about epilepsy and obviously that's a a clear brain function um, issue so it's sort of I, I sort of wonder where you stand on calorie restriction as a as a means of of healthier brain function yeah so i think the question that i would say that is still an open book is that my hypothesis is that calorie restriction works through ketosis yeah so then the question is so i think the 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 physiology question is how does calorie restriction work is it just literally through having fewer calories and therefore you're triggering things like ampk and mTOR or which which i think are important or is it you are producing ketones and that is an interesting metabolic substrate that also signals different longevity pathways. My sense is that calorie restriction works by being a way to generate ketosis. It is essentially like what calorie restriction is, is that if you eat 1,000 calories a day and your daily energy requirement is 2,000 calories a day, what you're essentially doing is eating 1,000 calories of external food and then 1,000 calories of internal fat. So it ends up being a simulated ketogenic diet because then at least half your diet is from fat, yeah, from stored fat. Yeah, right. And I was really, I mean, I love Ben Greenfield, and I'm, I'm was when I saw you interview him. First of all, I had to get past my initial jealousy. Um, but, but, but <laughs> I'll connect you guys. He's super friendly. I've, I've um, yeah, I've reached out to to his PA before. So I think we're maybe on track, but a little nudge would be nice. Thanks, Jeff. But what, what did you, what did you learn from Ben? Because he, he was really one of the first people to that, that publicly was experimenting 10 years ago with, with uh, ketosis and calorie restriction before for performance. Yeah. I think he's just definitely like the human Guinea pig. I would say that he is definitely one of the more vocal people that does like basically anything and everything. I think, to me, I think that's there's definitely value there. And I think some of his critics are saying that like he's kind of more on the pseudoscience side. But I think what I've found good about, and I think Ben is I think he legit knows that you have to be adventurous. I mean, I think science to me is asking and pushing what's understood. So I think when people are overly critical around trying to normalize experimentation, I think that's kind of antithetical to the spirit of science, which is try and do experiments. I think the great, the, the danger or the risk is that you start promoting stuff that isn't quite validated. But I think for someone to be, hey, I want to spend my own time and money and resources to experiment and give data for people, I think that's generally very positive. And I think you can make the argument that ketosis and ketogenic diet and fasting was kind of crazy. I remember five years ago, five, almost six years ago, when I started doing fasting and, and ketogenic diets for the first time, like the first Google result for ketosis was ketoacidosis, which is uh, uh, basically uh, a deranged state in metabolism when you're type 1 diabetic and your ketone production escapes uncontrollably because you don't have insulin as a backstop. Yeah, right. So so it's kind of like a disease condition for type type 1 diabetics. But that was the only, that was the first Google result for ketosis. Yeah. So like the first thing you read for a ketogenic diet, it's like, oh, this is like a, diet that puts you into ketosis and ketosis is like a dangerous state. Yeah. But, um, but it's not at all. Yeah. And I think literally if now it's, it's becoming one of the most, I would say widely researched areas in physiology and human physiology today. Yeah. So to me, it's, we need people like 
Ben and biohackers and folks that are just at the cutting edge experimenting and, and pushing what is known. And I think I've been become much more open to that experimental mindset. But yeah. I think a more recent version of that is like the carnivore diet, right? It's just like that would have sounded ridiculous. It still kind of sounds ridiculous when you talk to like normal people. Yeah. But then you try it, you think about it, you look at the the existing literature and it's like, hey, it's not that crazy. Yeah. Right. And then, and then people legit have good N equals one anecdotes about it. Again, like anecdotes are anecdotes, but I don't have reason to suspect that some of these people that Mm. are really curing their autoimmune issues, like why, why would they be lying about it? Yeah. So to me, again, as a good scientist, you're open-minded on observation. And then, yes, we should do randomized controlled trials and studies to understand why these things are happening. Yeah, Dr. Sean Baker is a real um, proponent. Obviously, he's the main proponent on Instagram of the carnivore diet. Yeah. Um, and he shows an you know, N equals one uh, pattern of normalcy. And and if anything, you want to be like him in your 60s, right? In your 50s and 60s, he's a bloody beast. Yeah. He's a legitimate athlete yeah. in, his own, in his own right. And he's only eaten meat for yeah. nearly a decade. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, I would put it, to you that if you said to people a hundred years ago only eat you know if you're a vegan or even told them what a vegan was a hundred years ago they would think that was crazy like that's Um, insane yeah so i just wonder if there's a conflict coming between vegans and carnivores and i don't mean a conflict physically but like of thought and of philosophy because on one side of one side of the coin there's a real um urge for us to get back to eating clean protein that was the catalyst for our brains to develop in the way that they have developed, which which changed us from from apes. To be fair, it was that access to that rich protein, probably in the form of marrow. And now now we're becoming well, you know, woke is the word, I guess, but we're becoming very, you know, let's let's care about the environment, let's care about animals. You know, there's a whole peace sort of narrative going through certain parts of society, which in fifty to one hundred years, I've been assured. We won't even need to eat meat, and and for those people who are rolling their eyes about you know oh we won't eat meat like it's not the fact that about killing the animals it's the fact that we'll be able to create substances that are that have the same um, the same substance structure and taste as meat but it's not meat so we won't have to go through the whole you know rigmarole of actually killing an animal to source that ground beef there'll be something else to take its place it's a bloody interesting area that we're coming into I think I'm. Glad I'm not going to be around to see that, see it go head to head, though. Yeah, my take on that is that I think these two communities are talking past each other and focus on different problems and different priorities. And I think that's, again, I think that's fine. I think on the vegan side, I, I see very few people make serious arguments that that's actually optimal for health. I mean, it just, it's like literally impossible to do that naturally without supplementation of B12, creatine, and some of these things you just cannot find in uh, uh, non-animal, like, like vegetable products or fruit products. Mm. Um, and I can understand that if they hold a moral argument around killing another animal for food is, you know, morally, you know, uh, uh, like the highest order bit for them. I understand that. I, I can understand that argument. Um, and I think from, you know, the counterpoint is that if you've been in the wild, like animals eat each other all the time. 
Mm. Right. Like it is just like the world isn't that uh, like, it, like the, the zebra isn't just dying of old age out mm. there. They're mm. getting eaten all the time. And I think that's where it's, yeah. And I, I'm sure I, I haven't <laughs> had like that much opportunity to eat wild game, but I would love to, I, I imagine these things would just taste awesome. And yeah. I think there's definitely the same kind of fun. Yeah. If you don't like, want to be, very- if you don't want to be eaten, don't be delicious. Like it's just, that's a food chain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's just a part of like human tradition and culture. Like the hunt has mm. been part of every single society. Mm. So I, I think to me, and I think where it gets a little bit contentious around the environmental factor, actually, I think it's actually not super clear mm. if what's what vegan products are actually environmentally superior, mm. especially if you look at some of the data around like a, a glass of almond milk takes like what 180 pints of water to produce Bloody a glass of almond milk. Is that right. that superior to? Uh, <laughs> A locally sourced grass-fed. The solution's somewhere in between. It's like, and I don't want to point fingers and make fun, but it's like let's all eat smashed avocado on toast, you know. And those avocados, how are they getting to that? Because they don't grow in the places where you're eating them. You know, that's come on an aircraft. You know, there's so. I mean, I can go. I could get really technical right down to the detail of how that you know mass transportation has occurred, and the workers involved, and the countries involved, and the the shipping, and the cargo, and the freight, and the, the economics of it. You know, but it still wouldn't even it wouldn't solve the problem for that person. There you go. There you go. And I think that's like is one aspect of that global supply chain, right? Like most avocados are grown in Mexico, and that's going to be coming in freight on ocean liner. And I think the thing that's very interesting is that oftentimes all of these farms spray glyphosate or Roundup and kill like Boy. literally trillions of insects yeah. and shrews and weasels and hares that are noodling out in this field. So then if you look at, okay, you have some cows roaming a grass field versus like every season blowing out an entire like, hundred acres and then putting pesticide everywhere, killing all the things that are foraging for food. I don't know. It's just like that. The math is actually nuanced. It's not like an easy answer that eating a cow versus eating a cabbage, like who's coming on top in terms of morality and environmental question. I think it's a, I, I, I don't, I haven't seen like a clear definitive answer there. I think it's a question that's interesting. I mean, yeah, for me personally, I, I've tried both. I, I'm like, I think, I think the real answer is like, humans are omnivores, right? Like I don't yeah. think that should be even questionable in terms of how we evolved. Yeah. Um, I think that that program, it's all good. It's all good. that Netflix documentary um, probably created more problems than, than it did. It made more questions than solutions, you know, than answers. Yeah. Game one. changers. Is was it? Yeah. Game, sorry. About. Yeah. Game changers. Not what the health, what the health was the other one that I think um, Rich Roll was involved with. Um, but yeah, game changers. What was your take on that? I haven't watched it, but I've seen enough people talk about it, like a good sense on it. I don't know. I, I think it's just an interesting commentary around how our culture is evolving, where yeah. I think people need identity. I think one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is That's that I would say that in modernity, people have lost identity and purpose. And this is again reflecting on what, or, or a previous thread where I feel like people that have served, especially in the special operations community, really have a strong sense of purpose, right? Like I think you, you talk to some of the folks you know, military is a big organization, so you don't generalize anyone, but I think especially people that self-select to work in some of these units really have a strong sense of purpose. Um, and I think you find that in certain aspects of the world, but I would say like 95% of people don't really have a purpose. Like is their day job, mm. like their, their, 
their mission in life. Mm. Like no one wanted to be a retail worker. And that's like literally the most common job. Like no one wanted to be a truck driver. Mm. Again, like one of the most common jobs in like 25 states in America. And this is not a judgment on are these valuable or not valuable. This is just a question on purpose and identity. And because I would say that a livelihood in t- doing a job is getting pretty di- separate from your identity and purpose. I think yeah. people are finding purposes and missions in like these weird niches. That's awesome. like, it is kind of yeah. weird. That That's true. Yeah. People really want to be a vegan. Like, is that really the most important attribute that you want to anchor your identity on yeah. or why it's carnivore? Again, it's just like, it's, it's a, it's kind of a strange attribute to yeah. be like, yes, this is like my, mission of existing sean baker's instagram is so good where he takes the really healthy vegan photos and they're like they look like toothpicks sick toothpicks and then he puts a a carnivore photo of someone who's like just you know powerlifting (laughs) anyway i find i find him funnier more than more than anything yeah yeah yeah. i think if you talk to him privately he knows he's trolling i think he is i think he sees his mission as i'm the counter troll to all the vegan trolls yeah so I, I think he understands that he's not, he's not, he's tongue in cheek in a yeah. lot of these posts. I've got some friends who are vegans and, um, and they're doing it for very, they're doing it for, for reasons that I can honestly say are, are good heartfelt reasons. And, and I, and I get that, but I love what you're talking about with identity and I can see that that is part of their identity because, you know, how do you know someone's a vegan? They'll tell you. Um, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I saw you. I saw you on a um, documentary a while ago while I was flying on Qantas. It was a, a futurist documentary, and the futurist was was talking about nootropics and different ways for him to shortcut um, a very busy busy lifestyle. Uh, part of me was like, "You're just a fat, lazy guy, mate." Actually, um, you'd probably be better served to find some discipline and not look for an easy answer in a bottle. But <laughs> He, um, he, anyway, so he was uh, trialing all these different nootropics and he had, he used the HVMN ester as a nootropic. He didn't give it a particularly great review. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't, he, he didn't have the experience that I had with it. But at the same time, I don't think he set himself up to be in ketosis when he was then taking it. Um, but anyway, I was wondering if you had any any sort of comments about that or if you can even recall. I know you do so much stuff, you probably don't even remember the documentary I'm talking about. No, no, no. Yeah, I, uh, I haven't watched it, but I remember it. I, I, that was a, kind of a fun experience. Um, I, I think your main, your first point, which is that you got to do the basics first, which is absolutely discipline in terms of, I think, the three pillars, nutrition, fitness, sleep, right? Like you're making a choice on your type of exercise, even if you're sitting, then you're literally training your body to sit 10 hours a day. Nutrition, you're making choices no matter what. I mean, that's something that everyone, every human. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Pass, make a decision on it and sleep again. 
everyone sleeps. So I think those are like definitely the anchors to focus on. That's the most important. For my mind, sleep is the most important thing that we, we continue to skirt over and don't understand. Yeah. If you can get those basics right, you got 95% of the job done. I think it's on the margin where supplements and things like ketoesters, nootropics could be pretty helpful in terms of people looking for the added benefit or the added edge. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like part of, I think one of the humbling parts of biology, of physiology, of metabolism, my, you know, all of our genetic baselines are pretty different. Our goals are pretty different. Like even if you look at all the clinical trials, some people were like, even something like caffeine, which is decently well regarded as it works. People have pretty different responses. Yeah. Like some people actually are super responders. Some people actually perform worse on caffeine and it's like, well, okay. Caffeine doesn't work for some phenotype of people. Like, but do we say that caffeine doesn't work? So I think that's like kind of like the humbling experience with just people. Like there's so much variability. Um, We can make good, broad clinical trials to show overall impact on like a general population. But I think there's like legitimate criticism, just how science is even done in, in these scenarios. Like I think like the adage you look at is that most clinical trials are done on Caucasian males that are within some uh, demographic, often like college educated, some somewhat wealthy demographic class. Yeah, it's not because that like they're better or not better. Just like those are just the people that are available to the researchers. Yeah, yeah. There's no maliciousness. There's just it's just like an ease of doing science. It's hard to do science. Yeah. And I think it's a good question. Is that translatable to broader populations? And yeah. I think that is an open question that people are not even really addressing. It's like I think an unspoken part of science around again, being involved in clinical trials and studies, it's just like hard to get people and it's expensive to get people. And it's, yeah, you don't like, they will literally not want to take women in the studies because there's a lot more variability in the hormonal cycles. And that's going to throw off your results. If someone is on one part of this menstrual cycle versus another, like, I I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, people, you know, women will talk about changes in moods just from that cycle. So you select them on one week versus another week, that's going to be a dominating factor of that study result. Yeah, right. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When you're taking something like a, when you're in ketosis and you're taking a, a ketone ester and there is already hormonal balance issues at play or optimal hormonal balance issues depending on where they're at. Um, and then you're, yeah. you're supercharging it with more ketone esters but yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting point that you make, and especially like you, you know your your uh, heritage, your background is different than my heritage and my background. I assume just by um, you know by us meeting uh, over the internet <laughs> a few times, and then and then some some of my you know some of my friends' backgrounds you know European, uh, especially that that sort of Mediterranean European um, that the I wonder how much difference there there is epigenetically and. And right down into that, um, you know, cellular level, and then and then do certain things work for some people with different genetic backgrounds? The traceability of genome through the ages to you know back through different yep. lines of human ancestry. Yeah, you know, you get more Neanderthal gene genomes than than the other person. Then maybe some of this stuff works better, perhaps. Yeah, no, I think that's just legit part of how like scientists are are trying to unpack all this stuff. And I think epigenetics is like a very interesting Mm. area. So usually when people refer to epigenetics, these are methyl tags on the DNA. So they alter how the DNA unfolds.
results mm. when you transcript them into proteins. Mm. And one of the interesting things that's at the cutting edge of ketogenic research is that beta-hydroxybutyrate can be an epigenetic tag on the DNA. Is that right? So it's called beta-hydroxybutyrylation. And no, we don't know what that does, but it's interesting because now there's a mechanism of how potentially being in ketosis longer changes how your DNA unfolds and it focuses different proteins to be expressed at different times. Right. I, I think the more you learn, the more like biology is complicated. Like these are, we're, we're the most complicated machines that we understand, right? Mm. Like there's just so much detail on every single layer of our biology, even that the, you know, there's like literally different types of epigenetic modulations you can have on the DNA itself. What, what's the evidence at the moment that, um, the ketone ester drink, for instance, is is um, advantageous to just to the everyday person if they're on a keto, on a uh, ketogenic diet. Yeah. So, well, I would say that if one is perfectly on a ketogenic diet and you have relatively high ketones, which is somewhat hard to maintain on a ketogenic diet, you can one can make the argument that aside from performance use cases or use cases where you really want a lot of ketones at the same time, you're not seeing that much of a difference for longevity or, or health or metabolic use cases. Mm. Um, <clears throat> what I would say is potentially on the other side is that you can make the argument that, again, on some, some uh, cardiologists will say having being permanently in ketosis, having elevated LDL is not great for cardiovascular disease risk. So then you, then you have the argument, is a ketogenic diet something that you want to be perpetually in? So I think to me, it's really looking at it as a tool, as like a fourth macronutrient that use as a lever for specific use cases. Mm. But yeah, I, if you could be perfectly in ketosis and you weren't worried about the LDL cholesterol story, which is typically associated with a ketogenic diet, and you don't need performance use cases where you would want carbohydrate and ketones at the same time, or you don't need really, really deep reserves of ketones at, at, like at will through a ketone ester drink, you can make the argument that you're getting all the benefits of a ketone ester through diet alone. Mm. So again, like, like one shouldn't say that, think that this is like some magic Jesus water. You know, it's literally just a calorie containing substance that is different impact on your metabolism than mm. a protein, a carbohydrate, and a fat. Yeah. And you may be able to mimic a lot of the benefits of that through diet and carb restriction alone. Yeah. But for like use cases and for really deep and big spikes of ketones, which again could be helpful for athletic use cases, performance use cases, uh, and potentially for neurological or like hypoxic conditions, where it's a, you're testing some of the extreme bounds of human physiology, then having that extra fuel tank, if you will, is an interesting tool that wouldn't have existed before. Yeah, it's a whole new, a whole nother energy source that just allows you to tap into what you would be benefiting from ketosis, but ketosis and carbohydrates at the same time. Yeah, and also just being, so yeah, that's one part. Like you can have ketones and carbohydrate, that double fuel tank at will, or you just have a crazy deep reserve of ketones mm. at, 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 at will, which is, again, people that have gone to ketogenic diet have measured their ketones 
it's actually like quite hard to maintain high ketone levels consistently. Like ketones will drop and as you work out because they're getting metabolized, they're getting used as fuel. So oftentimes when people work out while they're on a ketogenic diet, you'll see your blood sugar go up as your muscles release glucose that's stored and your ketones will go down as it's being metabolized. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's like one of those things and, and it makes sense. It's just all energy balance. I think another part of just like the humbleness around biology is that your body just wants to maintain homeostasis. Like Mate, it has a yeah. lot of complex machinery to try to stay balanced. Yeah. Like I'd be interested to know what you make of this, um, Jeff. So for the first three months of this year, I've been doing 10 kilometers a day for 10 days. Um, it's a mental, nice. mental toughness test more than anything. Um, and so for January 1st, 10 kilometers through, you know, every day through to January the 10th and then the same in February. And then I tried to do the same in March, but sort of fell off the wagon a little bit because um, life stress, work stress sort of overcame me. But what I noticed on the first round of 10 kilometers for 10 days, I dropped a lot of, a lot of weight and people were saying to me, oh, you, 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 you know, you look like you've lost weight. On the second yeah. lot, as soon as I started on the second lot, I didn't drop, a, I didn't drop a gram on those 10 days my body just held onto it all and it was i was like yep. wow this is fascinating and then the first three 10 kilometer runs in march as well or four four i didn't didn't lose any weight either um and my performance was actually going down in the first huh. lot of 10ks it was going up and then never since then it sort yep. of started going down and then it just sort of plateaued so it's like i became really um you know conditioned to it and especially to my metabolism became conditioned to it where I wasn't losing any weight, wasn't using any fat for fuel anymore on those 10K runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it sounds, it's, it rings true to me. I mean, I think our bodies have pretty consistent set points. It's very hard to ma manipulate those set points. Mm. So that's why when people do some of these crash diets, when they're talking about weight loss, you kind of rebound, right? Because your body has adapted to a set point and just like this acute shock that like you just starve yourself for like three days mm. and you'll just bounce right back up yeah but it's not just the set um, point of your body is it it's your brain your, your brain then starts to play tricks with you to get back to that set point like it diminishes your mental toughness it removes your ability to say no to things it makes you crave <laughs> shit until you can get back to that set yeah. point yeah I, yeah, I think there's like a lot of mechanisms there. I think definitely some is neurological. I think some is just actually what your muscles and in, in your adipose tissue wants to just hold on to. Mm. I think it's a it's a, I think it's a complicated system. Um, and I think it's interesting in terms of also just I think in terms of seeing perhaps the the tail off in March, there is I think a limit in terms of how much stress we should be applying to our bodies. I mm. think what I've seen people go wrong with is that people are so obsessed with optimizations that they start doing intermittent fasting, ketogenic diet and <laughs> do crazy workouts and have a stressful job and jump on a bunch of planes and you're all doing it for the first time in like six weeks and their bodies break down. It's just like each of these things alone is potentially a good hormetic stress, which makes you stronger, but overloading stress all at the same time that overcomes your systems, yeah. your, your body's natural resilience level. So I think that would be, I think it sounds like what kind of happened to in, in your instance, but I think also is this something that people fail to realize that these are stressful, mm. right? Intermittent fasting is a stress in its own way. I mm. mean, overconsumption is another stress, mm. but fasting is in, in a way a stress as well. And I think it's like staging it out and not doing like 15 things all at once, mm. letting your body act, adapt, towards a level of stress yeah again people should think about like they don't think they can run a marathon 
in a week. Yeah. If you're a couch potato, and the same thing should be thought of as in terms of your metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I've had a fairly solid training background, so I understand training load. And I just started to yeah. identify that in my um, in my work life balance was sort of falling apart. And I and I looked at the ten k's for ten days and realised that it was an it was just an added hour of stress which was impacting all around me. And, and although I say to people, you know, just get it done, it's it's well and good to say that. But when you are now working twenty hour days, managing a family life, managing children, managing work, managing a podcast, managing a renovation, managing this, managing that. It isn't a beneficial fitness regime. It was just a mental toughness regime. But guess what? The rest of the stuff's falling apart around it. So yeah, it was an interesting yeah. experiment. But I couldn't. I wanted to do it every month for ten days uh, at the start of every month. But it just has such a, an impact of time. So there is no day off for those ten days. Um, and what I found is, yeah. like I might go for a, usually I might you know I might go every now and again once every couple of weeks for a one kilometer swim. And that and that was less about fitness and more about you know just losing myself in the water. For, whatever but yeah. that the fact is it's still a type of fitness it's like today i, I walked to work and i'll and i'll walk home that will be the 10ks today it's just not 10ks of running um yeah it's an yeah. interesting and you're and you know you're not you're not shy of setting yourself some crazy ridiculous challenges over the years either mate like we have birthday <laughs> challenges that we need to talk about but, you know i've been also tracking some of your training and all that i think people should do more of that mm. I, I think people I, again you talk to a lot of day-to-day people they don't even have any goals mm. like i don't mean like do people even have goals anymore other than like their summer vacation i, I think that's again i don't want to be judgmental maybe like they just need to work and but even then like can you create some micro goals to look forward to and i think that's one thing that we all did as kids have a i don't know push-up test that you have to do for fifth grade mm. i think we've lost that kind of fluency to push ourselves and, 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 and be childlike. I think yeah. we've become these automatons in, in capitalism. Let's talk like about just, let's, let's, in time to get some dollars. Let's talk about your birthday challenges. I think it really started off. I want, uh, did 30 miles for my 30th birthday. And then I did, uh, so that was a year and a half ago. And then this past birthday, I had a ergometer challenge where I wanted to do 500 meters uh, in under 131. How'd you go? Which for, uh, I landed at 132, so it was a second off. That's a rowing so machine. I've been meaning right? to like go back and, and do that. Yeah, I think it's like hard for people that have never tried their ergometer to know like what that kind of feels like. But no. I mean, it just—it's actually—I mean, it's like 90 seconds of hell. Like it's just like you're sprinting as hard as you can. Yeah. For 90 something, it's not yeah. that—it's not that easy. I, I, I used to I've actually I put it on Instagram a few years ago. You might have even seen it. I did um I had this crazy idea that I'd be um an age athlete and break the world record for five hundred meters on the Concept Two rower. And so I had yeah. the I had the um the, the, the number that I needed to, to go under. I absolutely smashed myself for five hundred meters. I think I did a one I'm gonna say a one twenty seven rings a bell or something like yeah. that. And I was like, Yeah, I've done it like you know, I was about to post it on Instagram and all this sort of shit. And then I looked again yeah. at the numbers and realized that actually my weight, I'm actually a heavy weight and that this was the, the the lightweight, you know, um, and it was like the over fifties lightweight, not the under fifties heavyweight. And then I looked at the time on the under fifties heavyweight. It was like one twelve or one fifteen or something like that. It was like, and I was 
probably Sean Baker, yeah. but it was someone who would just rip their head off a, off a Concept Two rower, you know. And, and and I'm certainly not doing yeah. that. And I was very humbled by well, one second is humbling on the Concept Two rower, let alone you know 15 yes. or whatever it was. So um, I think I got off the rower and then packed it up and then went and bought a um, uh, you know an exercise bike or something. Or <laughs> yeah, one point seven is like very impressive. Again, I think like for folks who've never try to sprint on a, on a concept two or ergometer that sounds like oh it's like not that big of a difference but that's like massive watts different yeah and like when that's you roll off it's it. exponentially harder to get a second reduction yeah and you so like after 500 minutes i might feel similar you're probably like 20 percent stronger than i am for that 90 second period after after 500 meters you, you roll off of it and you lay on the ground for five times the amount that you were on it yeah yeah yeah, and if people that are doing world records are like, are, yeah, like 115s, these are probably people that are like deadlifting like five, like 800 pounds. I mean, these are big yeah. Viking like dudes. Yeah, I'll go like, back. Yeah, Sean Baker is like a massive yeah. man. I'll go back and have a look at the time and, and post it on Instagram later today so you can see. I'm, I'm sure it was under 130 though, but again, I'm nearly 90 kilograms, so I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, tiny. Um, yeah. So and then and then what I'm going to have a crack at is hanging off of a heave beam. In a st- and I saw that I was pissing myself laughing when you just hanging there for a minute fifty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I did, yeah, I did over two minutes. Yeah, it's actually like a good challenge. I think it's like one of those things where, yeah, hanging doesn't seem hard, but yeah, I just challenge people that are listening. Yeah, like go hang for a couple minutes. I doubt not most people can't do it. Yeah, like you just your hands get tired, like your your arms are hurting. Yeah. No, I knew when I saw you do it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a rock, rock climber when I was younger and, and just hanging yeah. off your limbs, um, you need to be ad, adapted for that. And it's not necessarily your hand strength that gives up. It's in and around under the armpits and shoulders and, um, and even your yeah. abs start to, you know, because if, if you just flop down without bracing your abs, then everything else around you sort of, you know, starts to become very, very heavy very quick. Um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's taken some time and effort to to build up to over two minutes. That's for sure. Yeah, and one thing that I was actually, I think maybe in, probably inspired by you was like doing a lot of the uh, power cleans and kind of the more power Olympic lifting. Mm-hmm. I think that people should consider doing much more calisthenics or when they're doing lifting, doing things like power cleans, mm-hmm. front squats, mm-hmm. which are it requires much more mobility and body perception or proprioception than just like a machine. And I think one of the new ideas that I've been noodling about is that I think most people are, are not self-aware with their emotions, but mm. I, I think that's more understandable because we have all this anesthesia with Netflix and social media and content all the time. But I think we've also lost self-awareness on how we move our bodies mm. because we are just, we are just always sitting and looking at screens. Mm. And I just realized that like, after having to care about like the form, because like if you have bad form when you're doing like a power clean, you're you're gonna hurt yourself. Yeah. And having to really dial that in, um, it's made me realize that I just feel like much more stable, much more just like confident in my body, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't have realized without having to like realize that hey, like people are, I think are pretty bad at balance, pretty clumsy, and just like yeah, like no one needs to select for that anymore. Yeah. Like you just. Need able to type on a computer if i was able to choose one um one movement and then only do that movement for a year which by the way i might do yet 
um, <laughs> would be deadlifts, and and I would I would do a deadlift for an hour, a variation of every day for a year. Um, I think that you could create a very very robust human. So that that might look like you know ten sets of sixty kilograms in one workout. The next workout might be work up to a one rep max. The next one might be a hundred reps of forty kilograms for time. So every day would be a deadlift variation. Um, and, and then things like a sandbag lift or a wall ball lift or things like that, but it would be a deadlift variation that hinge from the hip for an hour a day, yep. every day for, for a year. I think at the end of that, you'd come out being a very, very robust, strong individual. I've got a few people I follow on Instagram, one in particular who only trains, um, heavy, heavy deadlifts and he is an absolute weapon at anything. So it's, a, it's, yeah. it's one of those things where picking things up just picking something up and picking it up the right way and we don't and i watch i watch young people picking things up and rather than than use their whole body to pick it up they bend over at the at the spine and grab things with their twiddly little arms and then stand up with their spine you know and and it's just no wonder they're so weak you know you can only do so much weight with that um what's your crazy birthday uh plan for this year mate I got, I got some time to plan. So maybe we'll, we'll brainstorm some stuff. Um, I don't know. You gotta figure it out. It's gotta be something around 32. So yeah, my mate, my mate, uh, my mate Rob did, um, well, what about the year? It's 2020, right? My mate Rob did 2020 pushups for time. That's pretty good. It was insane. That's a good one. I couldn't do it. You'd have to build up to that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah that's, that's a good amount. I'm thinking, yeah. 2000 a lot. I mean, I think I can, I can definitely do, in the maybe like the low hundred, like low, like multi hundreds. Yeah, that that'll be a good one. Two thousand twenty pushup. He's um, yeah. I'll, I'll link you up on him on Instagram. Um, yeah, he did a lot of training for it. We did five kilometer run a day and five hundred push ups a day for five days leading up to it, and then he did two thousand and twenty. And I think it took him just under two hours. I think it was about one forty five or something like that. But I mean, it's it's a it's a difficult challenge because he went to he went to a very dark place during those push ups, you know, like yeah, I can imagine your arm, your triceps are locked up, right? Like I'm sure he was just locking up all his muscles were probably just yeah, yeah, like didn't want to move anymore. That's a good one. Coronavirus. Yeah, it's been one of the interesting things that I've seen evolve. Also, on the kind of on the media side, especially in Silicon Valley, because if I, if I looked like friend, if I looked like you, I'd just walk down the street, start coughing, and watch everyone run. See, see if you could use some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's, it's, it's been kind of sad. I, I've seen some of the Twitter posts where people are like, kind of uh, discriminating against folks yeah, that terrible. you know look. Yeah, I don't know if that that's that seems very <laughs> fair, but um, it's not. I mean, I think on the media side, it was interesting that especially in Silicon Valley, because I think. It's easy to critique Silicon Valley for its weird behaviors. I think, and, and it was interesting to see that, like, um, maybe like literally like three, four weeks ago, it was like people were making fun of these Silicon Valley VC firms of like not of doing like hands, no handshake policies and canceling events. And uh, one of my friends, Bology, like posted about it and was like criticizing the media. And then all the media had their like wave of. Uh, gang up and kind of trying to tear this guy down. And now like fast forward three weeks, like all the no handshake and all the things canceling was actually kind of proven not to be true. Yeah. So I think it's interesting from like a media cycle perspective. And as I was just commenting today where, uh, a lot of people are trying to criticize the U S government for incompetency. It did not have 
test kits and not reporting accurate numbers of confirmed cases. They're kind of sandbagging the numbers because no one's testing. But it's like interesting to hear, like read that same news report talking about China like a, like two months ago, where it was like, oh, the Chinese government's like not having information or data because they're trying to do like information suppression and population control and like they're being super communist about it. And I just think that like everyone's just trying and it's just like complex. And yeah. I don't and it, like I don't think there's like some crazy agenda for like US is doing it because they're incompetent and China's doing it because they want to like control information. I think they're probably maybe some grains of truth there, but I think they're just like complicated and no one knew what the hell was going on. Mm. It's probably like the real but I think in terms of just the statistics in what the data have shown so far, it looks like it's definitely quite viral, but in terms of lethality, it's not as lethal as SARS, not as lethal as MERS. These are some of these outbreaks over the last five, 10 years. Um, and, but like decently virulent, not as the virulent as something like measles, but like definitely on the higher end, mm. like the R not factor, which the virality rate is people are looking at somewhere between low ones to three. So every one sick person on average, they infect between one to three people, mm. which is like decently viral and, and, and virulent. My sense is that if I had to guess and predict the future, I think my guess would be that everyone or like a lot of people will get it like up upwards of people are asking upwards, like 50 to 70% of humans are going to get it. Uh, and folks that are not immunocompromised and aren't elderly are probably going to have like a flu or a cold yeah. and they will recover. Yeah. So Fascinating. for me, so for me, it's like, okay, do kind of common sense stuff. I have like friends who are like stockpiling food and buying antivirals kind of off label to like stock up. I have not gone to that extreme and a lot of companies in Silicon Valley are doing work from home policies, like just self quarantine, don't show up to the office. We haven't done that yet. We've just done voluntary. If people want to work from home, we can let, you know, people have making their own decisions. We haven't been like, yeah, just everyone work from home. Conferences are being canceled. There's supposed to be a expo that some of our colleagues were going to go down to down in Los Angeles. Mm. That was just actually postponed like a large uh, consumer packaged goods conference. So definitely seems to be impacting on the business front. I just can't tell if it's, if it ends up to be more like economic damage at this point, more than mm. life damage, even though like life is probably more valuable than economics. Mm. But I think, I think what is probably reasonable is that there's like the long tail risk that if this mutates into being super lethal somehow, and it's that and it's that virulent, then yeah, that might be a real scary case where mm. everyone gets infected and everyone dies. Mm. Uh, but my sense is like my takeaway right now is like do the common sense stuff. If you're feeling sick, don't go out, mm. wash your hands, all that stuff. But I haven't like changed my lifestyle. Like I'm still going to the gym and stuff. Mm. So maybe mm. I already have the coronavirus and I'm going to regret that. I'm going to die in two weeks, but, but hopefully not. I hope not, mate. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, assume, yeah. I assume that people who are moderately healthy you know, well, as you say, we're probably probably everyone's going to get it at some point. It's like it's going to be like the flu, and then um, you know, most people will bounce back from it. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the statistics that are the latest data, it, it basically, people that are eighty and older have a kind of a double digit double digit mortality rate. But folks that are like under thirty, under forty, it's like sub percent death rate. So mm. it's like it's not. I've heard that anyone who's 
anyone who's a smoker dies from it. Yeah, that's a high propensity to mortality. (laughs) I I wouldn't say like, hey, you've smoked it. No, no, it's definitely been it's definitely been designed that way, mate. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Um, when you when are you going to get the products? You know, in Seven Eleven over here in Australia, mate. So I can go down the street and start smashing ketone esters. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's something that we're looking to you know scale up i think that's like been the biggest challenge with mm. the whole space is it's pretty hard to manufacture uh in, in particular because some of the synthetic processes for each to mass production they don't like a lot of organic chemistry involves like chiral specific forms of molecule so again a ketone is an organic molecule but the interesting thing about it there's the uh, there's isomers of it or isomers of it, meaning that there's like a left-handed, right-handed version. Same mm-hmm. exact chemical formula, right? Same amount of carbon, same amount of hydrogen, same amount of oxygens, uh, but they're mirror images of each other. Yeah. And the body specifically only produces one specific form of that. Mm-hmm. But if you run a synthetic chemical process, you always, you kind of get a random process of getting 50-50 of both. Mm-hmm. So that's like a, a expensive process to get only the specific D beta hydroxybutyrate form of BHB. So you'd need to have a lab here that could do it to make it cost effective, as opposed to doing it in America and shipping it with the yeah, avocados. So I think that would be like the, the the holy grail dream would be you have these production fermentation plants yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then I think also just from a regulatory perspective, like US is the first market in terms of regulatory approval, and you know you got to go country by country to get yeah. make sure that this is food and all of that so i mean this is some blocking yeah because this is a you know a whole food group isn't it really yeah i I think that's how i imagine the market to evolve Mm. where you not just have like a you know our specific ketone ester yeah is everything there there are definitely research groups that are looking at other molecules there is uh other forms of ketones, like there's an acetoacetate, that's another ketone body that BHB converts into. Mm. It's potentially different applications for different uh, forms of ketones and mm. what they're bound to. So yeah, just like there are complex sugars, like starches versus like a glucose mm. syrup, simple sugar, you can imagine a world where there's different types of ketones that have different pharmacokinetics, different stabilities, different uh, curves of how they get digested and metabolized. So that makes more sense to me than like one monolithic molecule that everyone uses all the time for everything. So if if there's any of my audience who are listening want to trial this, is there a way for them to reach out to you and and pay the shipping or something like that to, to get it sent over to Australia or is that still bridge too far? Yeah, I think we used to do that, but it's just like a poor customer experience and it just gets complicated with like yeah. duties and like long shipment times. We have, we partner with The Feed, which is a e-commerce shipping uh, kind of company that does a lot of supply for all sorts of endurance athletes and they handle a lot of the international business mm. for us actually. So if you can't find it on hfitmen.com check out the feed it's a it's a it's a cool partner of ours okay and what about if they're over in the u.s can they buy it from is there a shop front now where they can buy it or is it still through hvmn or on amazon um yeah retail has been like just uh it's been hard because like usually with retailers 
I mean, just for folks that, you know, they need, they need their margin cuts. Yeah. It's just expensive yeah. to make yeah. this stuff. It's not like we bought this up 10 X. It's just like legit, like expensive to like to manufacture this. Yeah. So there's just not a lot of margin on it. Yeah. I can't, or, or, how much was it again for one of those vials like 10 years ago when it was a dapper? It's like a thousand dollars a gram to synthesize. So for a 45 mil bottle, it was. Yeah. It'd be like 25 K. For like a standard dose, and now yeah, it's just, now it's like how much is it now for a, for a, for for one of those bottles? Thirty bucks. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The the difference. Yeah, that technology has moved to be able to lower that that bar, that price, and also to make it more. Yeah, it's supposed to be down to three, right? Like that would be that's yeah. like the that's that's where it really becomes like a fourth macronutrient. Yeah. And I mean, if anyone's listening to this from Department of Defense, I'd, I'd love them to get in touch with you, Jeffrey Wu, um, the CEO, joint founder of HVMN, and, and look at some way of incorporating ketone esters into the Australian ration packs. Because, um, you know, I can tell you from my own experience, the stuff, the stuff works. And from my experience in the field, I can see how it would supplement our um, rations. Cool. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for being a, a guest on the Warrior You podcast for the second time. You're one of my favorite people to talk to, mate. And, yeah, it's uh, always fun, Brandon. Yeah, if you do the uh, if you do the 2020 push up uh, challenge for your birthday, I'll do it with you, mate. All right, I guess I, I gotta start training now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Hey, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just the physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au and just click on the training tab.